Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about questions regarding emotional abuse. But before we jump into that topic, let me remind you of all of the opportunities available for you, our PeaceWorks podcast listeners over at chrismoles.org. In particular, PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community, and uh, there you can find uh, just about anything that you're looking for when it comes to uh, gospel-centered approaches to confronting and caring in cases of domestic abuse. If you've benefited from what you're learning here on the PeaceWorks podcast, well, PeaceWorks University is your best next step. You can learn more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, so today, a few questions coming in, and uh, certainly pastors and counselors and leaders have been asking me this particular question quite frequently. And just to sum it up in kind of a general category, They may say something like this, Chris, I understand physical abuse. I understand sexual abuse. I'm still struggling with the concept of emotional abuse. Now, I might push back at that point and say, well, although I don't, uh, my temptation is to push back and say, well, perhaps you don't understand physical and sexual abuse if you categorically can't understand or don't understand emotional abuse, because we, we all kind of come from different places on this. And my friends may continue and say, how do you come down with hard lines in the categories of emotional abuse? How do you know the difference between an abusive individual and someone who maybe is just a jerk or someone who's hard to live with? And that's what we're going to try to unpack in this episode of the podcast And the reason why I say I wonder sometimes if we don't understand abuse is because I I think when we categorize certain activities, certain tactics that fall within the spectrum of abuse, remember abuse is just kind of our term to try to understand these concepts. Uh, One of the things I, I think we can run the risk of is actually reducing what abusive behavior really is. And so one of the things I would like to do with my pastor friends, and maybe this will help you as a listener, is that emotional abuse is just a category we use to describe certain tactics. Certain tactics that fall within the umbrella or the spectrum of abuse. Uh, How do you view abuse would be one of those questions. For me, remember, we're talking primarily about one person who uses power to control another person, to demean them, to uh, harm them. And there's a variety of ways in which that can be done. So power is a big player in concepts of abuse. Control is another player. Often the primary motive behind exercising power is to get what we want. Certainly that's not only an observable principle within the confines of abuse where someone in power objectifies that other person, they force them uh, into submission or subjugation, and then they have little to no consequences. So they, they want something. And, and of course, that's a biblical concept when we think about 
Uh, James, we do what we do because we want what we want. And we want what we want because we think what we think. And so our self-serving attitudes, thoughts, beliefs feed into self-serving motivations that then allow us to harm other people. So power, control. Often you're observing loss as well when you're working cases of abuse. Now, loss, you know, defining our terms a little bit, it's hard. The English language is hard. So even when I say the word loss, I might even mean the word um, stolen, taken, because there is this idea of being forced uh, into loss. And it'll be things like loss of freedom or agency. And so within the victim's life, there is restrictions that wouldn't be there without their partner or wouldn't be there with another partner. But in this relationship with this partner, this particular individual is restricted due to their partner's power and desire for control. Maybe they've lost freedom or agency. Perhaps they've lost a sense of self or personhood. Perhaps they've lost just normalcy. Perhaps they've lost certain rights or privileges that just seem to be again, normal and expected in relationships. When you compare their relationship to other difficult relationships that you've worked with as a counselor, are they similar or are they distinct in the individual's privileges, rights, freedom, etc.? So there's definitely a sense of loss. There's also a sense of like impending loss. All the things that I'm giving up um, in the future even that there's little to no hope, I should say, of things changing or getting better. And the pattern has actually shown us that things have been progressively getting worse. And then there's potential or real harm. Now, any of that I just described, loss of agency, loss of freedom, loss of self, loss of personhood, loss of normalcy, loss of privilege. I mean, all of those things are real harm. But there's also a potentiality for physical or sexual harm. That is, the threat of harm is still there. And so I bring all that up to say when we talk about domestic abuse, we're talking about individuals who are together in relationship, intimate relationships, and one person, usually the husband, is using their physical strength, their position, um, spiritual position and biblical passages to control their partner, to get what they want. They use that privilege and power and position to force their partner into certain um, behaviors or responses that allow them to function the way they want to. And it causes the victim to lose freedom, agency, self, personhood, normalcy, rights, etc. And all of that is reinforced by the potential escalation, the potential harm. Now, I bring this up because a lot of times we split those categories, and I think that's what a lot of my friends are struggling with. They're presented with real categories of harm that are somewhat limited to verbal and emotional assaults, things like name-calling or explosive anger or frustration. And the dynamics in that relationship have allowed them to see that as less powerful, less impactful, in part because they themselves know what it's like to be ridiculed or, or harmed by another person. For instance, there's not a pastor on the planet that does his job well that has not received pretty harsh criticism that's unfair and hurtful. 
as a pastor, I've, I've been hurt by congregants. I've cried trying to figure out, um, why so-and-so doesn't like me, why they, why they chose to say those words to me or about me. However, that individual had very little power over me. Now, granted, even if they were a big donor at the church, right, I would have some loss, but not a freedom of agency. I'm employable. It would hurt. It would stink. I could find some other means. I could escape. I could get away. I could rest in the knowledge that I was operating in integrity. Like all of those things are true. At best, at best, the emotional harm that congregants or parishioners could throw at me or any pastor at best is inconvenience, possible frustration, annoyance, and even some financial turmoil for the short term. But are they really, through their words and language, causing me harm or potential threat or loss? Eh, in my case, not really. In some cases, yes, and, and probably more rare than we would, than we would like to admit. The same is true when I'm working with individuals who um, have committed acts of abuse against their spouse, usually men who have strangled their partner, restrained their partner, uh, coerced or threatened their partner, sent some pretty terrifying messages to their partner, lorded over their partner, you know, engaged in a variety of behaviors that fall within all the categories that, we, that help us understand the construct of abuse. And they will often cite instances in which their partner has retaliated resisted. And and I want to be sympathetic because I don't think that wives should call their husbands names. I don't think they should be explosively angry and I certainly don't think they should be hitting their partner. But I also don't see them as apples to apples. While one partner may be using their power to control and isolate the other and in resistance the other partner hits them, there's no loss of freedom, loss of agency loss of self, loss of personhood, loss of privilege, often the primary response is annoyance. Now, there are cases that are very different, and I've had some very unique cases where wives have had some aspect of power and have used that to attempt to control their partners. But I will say, in general, men have just an easier path to use power, privilege, and authority to, to harm their partners that women do. I find that wives sin in a variety of different ways, whereas the sin of abuse is very much available to husbands. So I'm going to use a husband as an example here and try to unpack a little bit about what I'm seeing with my friends who are struggling with categories. So husband number one, he has called his wife names. He um, uses some derogatory language in heated moments of conflict, he blows up, especially when he's offended or disappointed. That's been kind of a telling mark of his explosive anger when he's disappointed or offended with his partner. He uses feelings, his feelings, his emotions, and his outbursts to get what he wants. He has on several occasions become angry and explosively angry because he knows that will end the argument, that will bring about the temporary peace that he's looking for. He mocks and manipulates when his spouse displays unwanted emotion. So when his spouse is angry, he mocks and manipulates her. 
when his spouse is disappointed or sad in certain areas and things that he finds undesirable, he mocks and manipulates. There's a pattern in which he uses her emotions and his emotions to dictate the ebb and flow of the relationship. He's created a culture of fear that now has left his wife walking on eggshells. She is less likely to engage in activities that she knows is going to bring about this explosive response. She is afraid that if she resists more, that she, if she challenges him, that it will escalate. Now, what we don't see in this, but I suspect, is that if we dig, especially with the husband, we will more than likely find incidents or a incident of physical force uh, currently being used or having been used in the past. And here's why I bring that up. Emotional abuse as a category is only effective in my mind because the threat, uh, and, and usually it's it's one of three threats um, categorically, but they're all based on harm. Physical, violence, sexual coercion, or spiritual abuse will be some of those reinforcing tactics. I'm going to guess that if we take husband A here and we dig, there's a good chance he has at some point in their relationship used restraint, force, or form of violence to reinforce all of this. Or he's used sexual coercion to create a culture of fear. Or he has used the scriptures to somehow create a culture of compliance using the very threat of hell or perhaps combining it with sexual coercion using 1 Corinthians 7 as a means of getting what he wants. Now, Chris, that seems pretty speculative. How can you argue that point? I can argue it only from experience. And I said, my guess, my guess is if I press into this guy and have an honest conversation and do the hard work of pulling the rope, I'm pretty sure we're going to find physical violence, sexual coercion, or spiritual abuse, or a combination of the three that makes the manipulation, the mocking, the name-calling, and the anger far more effective. And that's one of the things I'd like for my friends to see, that emotional abuse is not simply behaviors. In fact, physical abuse is not simply behaviors. Coercion is not simply behaviors. They are reinforced by something that grants that power and control. And usually, it's physical, sexual, or spiritual. Now, husband number two. Um, So I would say husband number one is probably abusive, probably abusing his power in the ways in which he uses his anger and emotions, the way in which he manipulates his partner's emotions. I'm going to guess there's more to the story reinforcing that power and control. Now, husband number two, he's grumpy. He's distant. He avoids discomfort, and he's often passive rather than active. While he doesn't threaten and he doesn't isolate, he really is hard to live with. He would rather watch television than engage in a conversation. He's tired all the time and seems uncomfortable just talking and conversing. He doesn't force anything on his partner, but he certainly doesn't make life easy. 
He's thoughtless and a bit arrogant. Now, there's some potential there. I want to dig deeper into husband number two because I may find some categories and some tactics that are disturbing. But it's also possible that after pulling the rope, we find that he's not using power to control. He's just a jerk. Now, it's funny that I say that, and I'll probably get some pushback on that because when I bring up that this guy may just be a jerk, I'm not saying that he's not abusive. I'm just saying I haven't seen it yet. i got to keep working and talking and dialoguing. But there has to be a potential category or option where we say husband number two is just hard to live with. I heard Ellen Pence say that years ago, and it was something that really helped me in my process of working with men is she was talking with um, a group of us, and she said, well, no, he's just a jerk. I wouldn't want to live with him either. He still needs work. He still needs confronting. He still needs help. But it's not power to control. There's no loss of freedom, no loss of agency, no loss of self, no loss of personhood. It's just hard. And that's, I think, where some of my friends are struggling. And all I'm asking you to do is to do the hard work of talking, dialoguing, getting to know more about the categories and the construct, understanding that the weight of abuse is compounded by the threat of physical harm, sexual harm, and spiritual harm, that all of these other categories, emotional abuse, financial abuse, threats and coercion, isolation, minimization, denial, and blame, they're all parts of a bigger puzzle. They're all rocks in the backpack. But the structure in the backpack, the the potential for being weighed down and crushed beneath emotional harm and financial harm and threats and isolation are the real powerful concepts of I can physically harm you, I can sexually harm you, and I can spiritually harm you. And that's one of the things that I wish my friends could grasp a little better. And I know not everyone agrees with me on this, but I really think if you begin to look at these categories of abuse, not as standalone, not as these isolated individual things, but that they are so interconnected and so, and so interdependent that when you ask good questions, when you counsel well, when you listen closely, when you gather data, you'll hear and develop a, a systemic response that's much fuller and much richer and much more hopeful than simply assuming that everyone is difficult. Yes, there are some people out there that are difficult to live with. We certainly don't want to just call them abusive and, and move on. We, if, if being difficult is abusive, then everybody's abusive. And if everybody's abusive, no one's abusive. But we also want to have clear understanding that these same tactics, passivity, distance, avoidance, when combined with the threat, when integrated with power and control, when it objectifies one's partner, that is different. We're not dealing with a difficult person, but a destructive person. So that's the thing I would like us to to do just a little better at is to see that just because somebody has a budget and they're really strict on it, it doesn't mean that they're emotionally abusive. They might need to lighten up 
or I shouldn't say, I should say economically abusive. They might need to lighten up. They might need to have some conversations. They might need to rest a little bit on mutuality and that's fine. And if they comply and are willing, that's great. But in the same way, if they're unwilling to comply and they use the finances to control and they keep their partner guessing all the time and they manipulate through money, well, there's some bigger questions there. Questions that need to be asked to see if it's being reinforced and that power is being used and physical and sexual harm are present or threatened or spiritual harm is taking place. In the same way, emotional abuse is a category is difficult to stand alone. But when you understand the construction of abuse and the, the concept of power over, it allows us to ask good questions and develop larger lists and patterns to see clearly what's happening. And if we can see clearly what's happening, we can build a plan for change. Not just allow and um, demand that victims stay in harm's way, but we can really see the harm that's being done and step in the gap and address it well. I hope that's helpful. I, I know that not everyone is on the same page as I am, but that's one of my best efforts at just helping us understand the concepts of abuse, that they're so much broader, but also more specific. So there's a broad categories of abuse, but a specific understanding of what grants it power and control. And that's one of the things that I think we can do a much better job of in the biblical counseling community. Well, thank you guys for listening today to the PeaceWorks podcast. You are appreciated. Uh, if you are listening uh, on one of the major platforms available to podcasts, please rate, review, subscribe, let them know. And uh, we so, again, appreciate you guys for listening in every week. And until next time, God bless.